0: He wills. He shall exalt
1: himself and magnify himself above every God, and shall speak astro- astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done, and he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price." At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Kushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him.
2: Let's pray together. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Yes, Lord, we are surrounded by many foes. The world, our flesh, the devil, the spiritual forces at work in the world who want us to fail and to lose the fight, who want to corrupt us, who want us to sin, to turn away from the living God. But with You, we are safe. You are a shield about us. You are our glory and the One who raises up our head. Thank You for sustaining us through this past week. For some of us, it perhaps was a very good week. A joyful week. Full of good news and triumphs and successes and joy and happiness and good conversations and easy uh, time sleeping and uh, productive days at work, excellent opportunities to, uh, to teach our children, it was full of wonderful things, and we come here today energetic and excited and, and, and ready to continue to see another day. For others of us, Lord, each moment of this week was pure Agony. Every day we awoke wondering, how am I going to make it through this day? Every night we laid down to sleep wondering, will I see the morning? And yet you have brought us here. And we rejoice. Not just that we have survived, but that we have survived and been able to come together with your people to worship you, to hear from you, to meet with you. I pray that we would not leave here the same as when we entered this room, but that we would be conformed even more into the image of Christ. Lord, for perhaps any among us who would be considered idle, Lord, I pray that your word today would admonish them, would convict them of sin, that they would be moved in their hearts to repentance. Lord, for those who are faint-hearted, I pray that they would be encouraged this morning. That they would be uh, shown the the grace and the mercy of God for, for needy people. And Lord, for those who are weak, I pray that You would provide them help. Help by Your Spirit and help by Your saints. I pray, Lord, that You would make us aware and conscious of the people around us. We're not individuals sitting in seats all alone. We are people in a room gathered with God. Gathered together. Help us to think of the people in the row next to us, the row in front of us. Help us to pray for one another right now. May our hearts go out with love to each other in this place, and would you be pleased, O God, to show us Christ. May he be glorified today in our time together, and we rejoice in the time we've already had, and we pray for the preaching of your word and the observance of the Lord's Supper. God, that you would be glorified and that we would be strengthened in our faith. Lord, for Anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. May they not go another moment without loving and cherishing and treasuring the Lord Christ. Lord, I do pray for not just us here gathered in this room, but for those among us who uh, who want to be here with us today, but they can't. Maybe they're sick recovering from surgery, they're ill, something has drawn them away and they're unable to be here today, I pray that You would bless them. That You would smile upon them. Lord, for those, any traveling, God, I ask that You would, would help them in this day as they, we pray, gather with Your people somewhere else in another church, whatever wherever they are that they have met with Your people. Lord, especially I want to pray for um, one of our elders, Illumidae, as he is preaching elsewhere this, this Lord's Day and speaking to this church about Lux and Tenebris um, his, and his efforts to raise support for pastors in Nigeria seeking theological training, we pray for him that you would uphold him this morning and give him grace and, and blessing that he might proclaim your word um, faithfully and that you might raise up supporters for the work uh, there at, at that church. We pray for, um, for other churches as well, not just ourselves. We, we pray for the Kirk Presbyterian out in Savannah. We pray for Pastor Pete Whitney, and we thank you for him and his elders and deacons, and we, we, we ask that you would make their labors fruitful. That you would bless them and strengthen them, uphold them by your right hand. And we ask that you would help us to remember that, that we are not alone. Even here in our area, the greater Savannah area, there are churches that are growing and being strengthened by the Spirit with us. And so we give you great praise for them and pray for the Kirk this morning that as they gather, you would meet with them as you do with us. Lord, for one of the churches in the Reformed Baptist Network that have joined with us there to enjoy one another's fellowship and to cooperate for the purpose of missions in the world, we pray for Grace Fellowship Church in Bremen, Indiana. Pastor John Heaney, and we thank you for them and for their willingness to host the GA last year. And it was a blessing to us to be there. And we we pray for them this morning. And as they they gather, that you would... um, speak in a fresh and powerful way to them this morning through the preached word that they would hear and see Christ and that they would walk away having spent time with him by the power of his spirit and that they might be further transformed into his image and and we ask for faithfulness to continue there and for the Reformed Baptist Network we do pray Lord that you would help us to to think well about the future as we continue to grow and churches come into the network we need wisdom. We need meeting places. Lord, for the GA this year, we still need somewhere to meet. And so I pray that you would make it apparent where that ought to be. And God, we, we, we pray for one of our missionaries this morning, for Raul, Raul Torres in Juarez, Mexico, in the Iglesia Bautista Pacta de Gracia. We pray that you would help him... And his ministry there and that he would continue to be supported and and that his needs would be met through generous donations of your people and and we ask that you would give him strength on the mission field and uh and we thank you for his life and ministry lord we also thank you for steve and maggie carr and we pray that you would give them patience and urgency and perseverance in their work to raise the remaining support that they need for their move to Cluj, Romania. We pray for the people of Romania. We pray for the people of Cluj. We, we ask God that you would just pour out your spirit upon them, that you would bring uh, boatloads of people into the kingdom through the work of Serge there on the ground, that Steve and Maggie will be joining when they go, and we ask God that you would give us not just a heart to send uh, a missionary couple overseas long term just to say that we've done it, but that we would long to, to see the, the people there in Cluj to come to know Christ or to come to know Him more closely, intimately than they presently do. And so we pray for the, the church plant there, and we pray for all whom Steve and Maggie will be meeting. And we, you would prepare those souls and hearts for important gospel opportunities and conversations and lastly god going back to nigeria we pray for our the seminary we thank you for the improvements in the library and the increase there we ask for help in finishing the building project and we give you many thanks for all of the support that we have had for years there uh, at iptt and and we ask that you would Use that seminary, use our labors there, not for the glory of our name, but for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts. Gonna be in In Acts Acts chapter chapter 8 8 this this morning. morning. Looking at verses four through 25. Acts Acts eight, four through twenty-five. And uh, the um, title of our sermon is Fallout, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are Scattered, Simon, and Samaria. Last week in Acts 6, 8 through 8, 3, we saw the Lord use uh, a very dramatic and really awful event in the life of the church, the stoning of Stephen... We saw the Lord use that to scatter His church, His disciples, into uh, the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. He scattered them out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. If you remember, Jesus had promised His disciples in Acts 1-8 that He would give them His Spirit, which He did on the day of Pentecost. And we saw that in Acts 2 after He was exalted to the right hand of God as the the newly crowned King of the universe. He gave them His Spirit, and He said His Spirit would empower them to bear witness to Christ and to the things that they had seen regarding his, His life and ministry, His death and resurrection, They would bear bear witness witness to to him him in Jerusalem Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And and so in our text today, uh, we have have left left Jerusalem with the disciples and And we we are in Samaria Samaria now. now. And we We see see the the ministry of of, uh, Philip. He was was one of the the servant servant leaders who had been appointed to oversee oversee the the care of the the physical needs of the disciples back in Acts chapter 6, and so we see Philip here in chapter 8 brought uh, into into the light in his ministry, and he's in Samaria. Now, some background about Samaria is important here. Many of you likely know this, but in case you don't, it's worth reviewing, and even if you've heard it before, refreshment now, refreshing our minds here isn't uh, a bad idea. and So about a, a thousand years before Stephen was martyred, the twelve tribes of Israel uh, had been given a king and a kingdom. God had made them a kingdom. But then, in, uh, in very sad circumstances, the kingdom was split into two under the reign of a man named Rehoboam. This would be King David's grandson. The, the ten northern tribes formed one kingdom, which we see referred to as Israel, and they had made Samaria their capital. And then in the, the two southern tribes, they formed uh, another kingdom, Judah, and Jerusalem was their capital. So about 100, or 250 years after this, the nation of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, And And so so the people people of Israel, the people of of Samaria, who weren't killed or exiled, ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians, a a Gentile, non-Jewish people group. And then about 250 years after that, in the 4th century BC, they set up a new temple on Mount Gerizim, and they had rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so by the time of the New Testament, by the time of these goings on in Acts chapter 8, um, which is um, you know, about 300 years after this out full-on apostasy of the Samaritans, the Samaritans were considered total enemies with uh, Jerusalem, with the Jews, culturally and religiously. They were considered spiritual and ethnic half-breeds. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. You see this exemplified in Luke chapter 9 when they're passing through and and the Samaritans don't want really to hear anything uh, about Jesus from Jesus and the disciples. And John, the apostle John, is one of the men who want to call fire down from heaven to consume this Samaritan village. The animosity between Jews and Samaritans was intense. And so, in the Gospels, if you look at Jesus' ministry to several Samaritans along the way, or the way he uses Samaritans positively in his his, uh, parables, it would have been striking and even at times confusing to, to the disciples. How much more so might it have been confusing to many when Jesus pours out his Spirit on an entire city which we see here in Acts chapter 8. So let me read these verses, 4 through 25, outline them, and then we will get to work. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So there are really two main things that I want you to see with me in these verses this morning. Uh, but they're going to sort of be interwoven together. So first, in verses four through eight, and then again in 14 through 18, and in verse 25, we see a very big picture overview of Philip's ministry in Samaria. We see the, the joyful reception of his ministry, a joyful reception of the Word of God among the Samaritans, as God welcomes the Samaritans into his church. But then secondly, in verses 9 through 15 and 18 through or 9 through 13, and 18 through 24, we see one particular example of a man, Simon, the the magician, or Simon the sorcerer. We see his uh, conversion, his sin, and and rebuke that he receives from Peter. And like I said, Luke weaves these two stories together um, like one of those uh, big uh, double-decker sandwiches, right? So if you had like... Uh, the meat and then the, or the bread, the meat, the bread, the meat, the, meat, the bread, right? That's kind of how this story works together. You have um, Samaria, and then Simon, and then Samaria again, and then Simon, and then, Simon and then Samaria again. So they're all woven together, and so I want to look at them separately, and then I want to, at the end, try to bring them together and help us understand why it is that Luke writes this story in the way that he writes it. So that's what we're doing First look with me then beginning in verse 4 at the the gospel reaching Samaria. And there are three as i said movements to this story. In the the first part in verses 4 through 8 Philip's ministry is described in very very general terms. We see what he we see his general ministry and we see resulting joy that comes from it. But then in verses 14 through 18 Luke describes the, impo- the apostles' involvement and the Samaritans' reception of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 25, we see the apostles return to Jerusalem, but they continue preaching the gospel to the Samaritans along the way. So I want to look at each of these under this first heading. First, in verses 4-8, through eight, here's the, the gist of, of what Philip has done there in Samaria. He was preaching the gospel to great effect. The cultural and spiritual half-breeds were hearing the gospel and paying attention to it. They were committed to listening to him. They saw the signs. They saw the wonders that he performed. They heard the words that he spoke, and they listened. They paid attention. And he was healing many with unclean spirits, and he was healing those who were sick. And and as I said, the outcome is, is simply uh, stunning! It's it's pure. There was much joy in that city, is what Luke writes. But then we're told in verses nine through thirteen that, and this is not the section so much about Samaria, it's back about Simon, but we do learn there in those verses of nine through thirteen that those who believed were baptized. So Philip preached; they paid attention. Some believed. Those who believed were baptized. But then in um, here in fourteen through. Uh, Through through 18, or 17 rather, we 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 run into into a problem. problem. So there's There's joy, there's there's casting out of demons and healing of the sick, but then we get this problem. The Samaritans, they had had received the Word of God, God, they had had been baptized baptized in the name of Jesus, Jesus, but they they hadn't yet received received the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And so so the the apostles apostles send Peter and John down to lay hands on them that they might receive the Spirit, assuming, you know, once they've confirmed, in fact, that they had believed. And what's what's interesting here, just to to note the 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 wonder wonder of the gospel, this is the same John who uh, just, you know, maybe a couple years earlier in Jesus' ministry wanted to call fire down from heaven, as I mentioned earlier, to, to consume the Samaritans. And now here he is to go and impart the Holy Spirit to them. And yet, this account from Luke's pen has led to a lot of confusion for many people. And it brings us back to Acts chapter 2, when Acts chapter 1. Right? In Acts 1, as I said, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, once you get the Holy Spirit. Well, Acts 2, we see them getting the Holy Spirit. Jesus pours out his Spirit upon 120 eagerly waiting disciples, uh, the apostles among them. And then Peter preaches a sermon explaining what had happened to the surrounding crowds who saw and heard these things, and he promised there, and here's especially the interesting part he promised that upon the repentance, upon repentance and baptism, they too would receive the Spirit. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter two and his sermon on Pentecost. And so on that day, if you recall, about 3,000 Jews from all over the known world who had journeyed to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost, they were converted, were baptized, and received the Spirit. And that is what continued to happen in Jerusalem in Acts 3, 4, 5, and 6. And yet, here in Samaria, that's not what happened. Samaritans believed, they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Spirit. Why? Well, some see this passage, they use this passage, and then the one about the Gentiles in Acts 10, or the disciples of John in Acts 19, they they use these texts to show a a two-stage initiation into Christianity, and to say that that's normative for all Christians, The baptism of the Spirit, in other words, they argue, is an event that happens well after faith and is separate from one's conversion. It's about bringing us into a greater experience of Christianity and communion with God to be baptized in the Spirit. And so they don't consider all Christians to be baptized in the Spirit pointing to a text like Acts chapter 8. The problem with this is that it doesn't take into account what it is that is tying these passages together, these four receptions of the Spirit that occur in Acts. These four accounts, Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19, they're accounts of people demonstrably receiving the Spirit well after they had already believed in Jesus, and it's all about the flow and the point of the book of Acts. Remember, I know I've said it like eight times this morning already, that Jesus had commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The apostles, the early disciples, Jews in other words, they demonstrably received the Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost. In Acts 8 here, the Samaritans, or the the half-Jew, half-Gentile folks, they hear the gospel, and they believe. And so so the Spirit Spirit is demonstrably given given to them afterward in in order order to communicate communicate in no no uncertain terms that the gospel gospel had truly broken out from the confines of the capital city city of Jerusalem. It was was not not for Jews only, but for others others as well, even even the Samaritans. And it also, also, here in in Acts 8, 8, it prepares us us for what's what's coming in Acts 10. 10. Here's what one uh, commentator writes, he says, At this turning point in the mission, something else was required in addition to the ordinary baptism of the converts. It had to be demonstrated to the Samaritans, and we might add to the church already existing as well, it had to be demonstrated to them beyond any shadow of doubt that they really had become members of the church in fellowship with the original pillars an unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. And so the point in this account is not that every Christian should experience the baptism of the Spirit in some dramatic manifestation of a way sometime well after conversion, bringing them into some kind of top tier experience of the Christian life. The point is that every Christian is baptized in the Spirit and in the Acts narrative As the gospel spreads from Jews to Gentiles, which you have to, like, if we don't understand the significant spiritual and cultural barriers that existed between Jews and Gentiles and Jews and Samaritans, even just from an Old Testament perspective, not to mention the history that had gone on between them, but just God's people in the Old Testament were Jews. You had to become a Jew in order to be a part of His people. That's not true anymore. And so the point is that Jesus demonstrably pours out His Spirit in stages in a few instances here as the Gospel is going into new territory to show that they all in fact were and had been and needed to be baptized in the same Spirit. And one other thing, or I guess two other things about this point. Remember, back in Acts 2, at 2, Pentecost, we, we said, said that Pentecost, Pentecost was the reversal, was the reversal of, of Babel. Babel in Genesis 11, where, where God, God had scattered them and, and, and confused the languages. languages Acts, Acts 2 is about the return the uh, to that, where there's, where there's a, a language, language miracle, where, where there's not confusion about who's, who's saying what. They understand one another. Well, beginning, beginning at, Pentecost, at Pentecost, we see Christ, Christ his winning his people from, people from the oppression and the, and the bondage of spiritual forces that had begun back in Genesis 11. He reclaims them and He unites them all in His name. And so the point is that Samaritans now belong to Jesus Christ, having been purchased by Him and His blood and baptized in His Spirit. And then in Acts 10, we'll see the same is true about all Gentile nations as well. And then a final thing about the uniqueness of this moment. The apostles' involvement here is important for us to understand how this is, again, unique in the, the life of the church. The apostles served a unique function in the church. They served a, a founda- as a foundational element for, for laying the foundation of, of the New Testament church. In every case, after Acts 2, it was through the laying on of the hands of some contingent of the apostles that the Spirit was demonstrably given to new groups of people. And so we see the apostles' involvement, their necessary involvement beyond what Stephen did as, uh, as unique here. And then it, this, he concludes this section Uh, really this whole passage, by simply saying in verse 25 that after all of these things, Peter and John, they go back to Jerusalem, but they continued preaching to the Samaritans on their way. So the gospel, point number one, the gospel has come in full to Samaria, to perhaps the the great surprise of many. Well, secondly then, let's go back through uh, these verses and consider this man, Simon. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see, see that, that primarily, primarily in really in 9 through 13, through 13 and then in um, 18, 18 through 24, where we see, see this, uh, as Luke, Luke zooms in, he gives an up-close, an up-close shot and picture of one, one Samaritan, Samaritan in particular, Simon the, the magician, or Simon, Simon the sorcerer, and full disclosure about Simon, Simon here, here. Um, there yeah, is, is, I thought there was more debate about it than there is, I, there's a Pretty settled agreement that most people seem to have concerning this man, Simon, and whether he was genuinely converted or not. I find myself in a severe minority regarding this, this, this man. And so um, I just want to be honest about that up front. And you'll see what I mean when I get there. Verse 9 then offers us a quick shift. From the joy that was going on in the city as a whole, in verse 8, verse 9 shifts to this man Simon. We're told he, was, he had previously practiced magic. He was amazing all the people, and he had made quite a name for himself. Luke writes, they, they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time we're told he had amazed them with his magic. And so when you read this, if, you're, if you were reading Acts for the first time, and you get, to, you get to chapter 8, you're probably astounded. The church is scattered. What's going on? You get to verse 8, there's joy in the city of these Samaritans. And then all of a sudden, you, you see this man, Simon, this, this sorcerer with unbelievable power and fame and reputation that he was, had, had claimed for himself. Maybe this is going to be a huge problem for the gospel's advance in this area. Luke sets us up to think that things are not going to go so well here in Samaria. There were problems in Jerusalem. There's problems in Samaria as well, as man, and perhaps this, this man, man is, going is going to steal people away. But then just as quickly as Luke introduces this potential threat, this threat, he shows the threat neutralized. He writes, but when they, they believed Philip as he, preached the, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both, and were baptized, both, both men and women. And, and then he says, even Simon himself believed. And then, after, after he, was he was baptized, baptized he stayed with 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 Philip. Philip. And he He himself himself was was amazed. amazed. The amazer has has become amazed by the the signs and wonders wonders that Philip Philip performed. The master master magician, the great power of God, is mastered by the the true miracle miracle worker, the the true great power of God. God. And yet, unless unless we we think think we're out of the woods, the the story story isn't over. over. The problem isn't completely completely resolved. Because We see this in verses 18 through 24. Simon was enamored with Philip in verse 13. But when he sees the apostles and what they were doing, imparting the Holy Spirit of God by merely laying their hands on people, he was absolutely flummoxed. He was flabbergasted. He didn't know what to do with it, and he wanted it. Old Old habits habits die die hard, hard, don't they? (laughs) Now, as I said, most most commentators that I read absolutely absolutely reject the idea that that Simon had been genuinely converted in verse 13 when Luke writes that he believed. But But it's it's not just, and it's it's not just because because of the request that he makes that they they say this, it's not just because he wants wants to buy buy the Holy Spirit. It's not just because of his insane request, but it's because of Peter's rebuke and because of Simon's uh, response to Peter's rebuke. Peter tells him, basically, to hell with you and your money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter because your heart is wicked and not right before God. Pray and repent, and if possible, ask that you might be forgiven and he ends, he ends the rebuke by, by locating Simon, Simon in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And, and admittedly, those are those are strong, strong words. Right? Like I've, I've never, never said anything close to that <laughs> to, to probably anyone in my life. Strong words from, from Peter. Peter. And so, and so it, it should, should give us significant, us significant pause regarding, regarding this man, man Simon. We should not haphazardly, we shouldn't be uh, too rash rash in simply saying, oh, well, of course he's a believer. Because Peter is very bold here. And yet, I do not believe there is any actual reason to conclude, at least with the confidence that so many do, that Simon was not genuinely converted, as Luke records. Here's why. First, I think it's important that we consider the different vantage points from which Luke writes and from which Peter speaks. Luke, as the narrator of the book, tells us fairly plainly in verse 13 that Simon believed. He was baptized, and he continued with Philip. He then describes an awful, awful sin that Simon commits, but then he seems to indicate that there was... Perhaps some kind of repentant heart in verse 24. He asked Peter to pray for him that God's judgment might not fall on him. Now, contrary to Luke's big picture authorship of the book, Peter is simply responding correctly in the moment to the man's sin. Luke's point is to show us the power of the gospel, the grip of sin, the need for correction in our lives. Peter simply wants to warn Simon that he needs to understand the danger he was in. In effect, Peter was saying, hey man, check yourself. These kinds of desires are at war with the Spirit, and if you continue in them, you may very well show yourself to be cut off from Christ. And so so Simon Simon responds responds, with a request. Pray for me. It's it's true true that that the New New Testament Testament sometimes uses the word believe to describe describe something something less than actual saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ. You think about James James 2.19. You believe that God is one? one? Good Good for you. Even the demons believe believe that. But I... When you read Acts 8, 8, I think you have to do a lot of reading reading into the text in order to arrive at a firm conclusion conclusion, anyway that Simon Simon didn't didn't actually believe, that he wasn't genuinely converted, as Luke Luke explicitly explicitly says he did in in verse verse 13. And that we have have to to read read a lot into his his reply reply, to see it it as 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 a mere shrugging off of the burden of repentance. Right? That's sort of the idea when Peter says, pray... And Simon Simon says, you pray pray for for me." me. Maybe. But I think we have to read into it. And we have to use, I think, the less clear part of this passage to interpret the more clear part of the passage. To arrive at a conclusion that he wasn't converted. What I mean is, we are interpreting Luke's explicit statement of Simon's faith through the lens of Luke's silence after Simon's request that Peter pray for him to conclude that he wasn't truly saved. right? If he hadn't included the line, Simon answered, pray for me, it would be much easier to end on the note of Peter's condemnation of the man. But he doesn't end there. He adds the request for prayer. Though he doesn't really comment upon it. He doesn't tell us what we should think about the prayer. And so... It seems, it seems best, best to read that in light of the comment that he believed. He believed, he, he fell, fell into sin, he was rebuked, and then repented. Now again, I admit, this, that's a, that is a minority, a minority understanding. But here's a question that will help, and here's where I want to bring it all together. Bring these two uh, parts of this passage together that I think will help. Why does Luke intermingle these two accounts in the way that he does why does he tell these stories at all why does he tell the 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 story in acts 8 through 10 especially in the way that he does Luke, this is this is my answer luke wants his reader to see that yes it was not all rainbows and butterflies for the church it wasn't that way in jerusalem it's not this way in samaria it won't be that way to the ends of the earth Nevertheless, the Gospel is the unmatched power of God for salvation. Intertwined with the astounding account of what God was doing in the hated region of Samaria as He advanced His kingdom to the ends of the earth is this story about a great man whom God conquers and reduces to ashes in His own eyes. And yet, even after coming to Christ, This powerful man still had sinful desires that he had to mortify. Salvation, in other words, is not always the clean break from sin that we want it to be. Yes, there is a definitive break in our relationship with sin. And yet, we have to continue living according to that break. Sin is always knocking at your door, friends, It's always beckoning. It is always ready to receive you again should you choose to turn to it. The Samaritans had received the Gospel just like the Jews. They had received the same Spirit just like the Jews. And they also had the same problems that they had to deal with. They had to put sin to death. It might be helpful to think of it this way. Acts 10 or 8 through 10, 8, 9 and 10. Demonstrate how the church's witness to the resurrection of Christ was overcoming the spiritual and ethnic boundaries between Jews and Gentiles and even the half-breed Samaritans. As God's kingdom advanced to the ends of the earth, his gospel was conquering hearts. Doesn't it, Doesn't it, therefore, therefore make, make the most sense, sense given, given what, what is said about Simon and what is not said about Simon, to see to his conversion is as genuine, genuine, even if messy, but it's a genuine, genuine declaration of the power of God, of God to, to save, save the greatest, greatest sinners among us? us. In yeah, fact, yeah, as I'm we're going to see, see in the weeks, weeks to come, come, Simon is just the first of four examples that Luke makes of this in this story. Right In Acts 8... In this section, up through 25, we see Simon the sorcerer. In our next section, in 26 through 40, we're going to see the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in chapter 9, we see a persecuting Pharisee come to believe in Jesus. And then in chapter 10, we see a curious centurion of a Roman cohort. The point... The kingdom, the kingdom of, man of man is no match for the kingdom of, kingdom God. of God. And so, and so that's, that's, that's my take on Simon. Simon. Either, Either way, way we, we need to get, to get this. this. Sin is, is dangerous. Is and that's, that's the first, first point of application I want to make as we wrap up, up. up here. So Simon's, Simon's story, story teaches us, whether you, you think, think he's, he's converted, converted or not, At a a minimum, minimum it teaches us us that that while we must must rejoice in the power power of grace, we must must also also put put sin to death. death. Simon Simon believed, but he didn't understand understand the danger that he was in to fall back back into old patterns and old habits. And according according to Peter, he either either did, depending on your take, or he nearly invalidated invalidated his faith. faith. And so so what what sin sin is in your life, life, friend? What is the sin that you are tempted to ignore? What wrong thinking are you not quite willing to engage in battle? What sinful longings and desires of the heart are you leaving unchecked? What choices do you continue to make despite their offense against God and the harm that they bring to yourself and or to your neighbor? You know, Simon's sin is an egregious one, to be sure. But does that mean that your lesser sin deserves God's wrath any less? Friends, I would urge you, don't don't toy with sin. If you give it a foothold, it will take over your life. Let's put sin to death here at Redeemer Baptist Church. In other words, to quote uh, the great John Owen, be killing sin! Or else, it will, it will be killing be you. you. That's, That's the first, the first point. point. Second point. I was, was going to make, make this, this a longer, longer point, point, but I, because, because of the, the, the text, text uh, with, with the, the Ethiopian eunuch, I'll save the, mo- mo- the majority of it, of it for that. Yeah, but I'm going to make, make this, this point, point now, now um, um, about, about the, importance the importance of being be Baptized. baptized. So, so to, to make, make the, the point quickly, quickly the Samaritans, Samaritans believed, we're told, and were baptized. Then, then we'll see the Ethiopian, Ethiopian uh, believe and, and get baptized. And then, and then baptized. Paul believes and gets baptized. And, and so for the, the next, next, next several weeks, weeks you're gonna, we're going gonna to be thinking about baptism. baptism. And so, so if, you, if you're, you're here and, and you, don't, don't, you haven't you have been baptized, baptized, but you believe in Jesus, you need to be. be. It's a declaration, declaration of what God's done, done for you him, and Christ, Christ commands, commands us, us to to baptize disciples. We publicly identify with him in our baptism. baptism. We, we identify, identify with the suffering savior who died and, and was, was raised to life. You know, our, our faith, faith is, is not a mere, mere it's not a matter a of of a mere, mere private, private personal opinion, opinion and conviction. conviction. It is the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. And so we want to identify publicly with Christ through, through the ordinance of baptism. And so that's not a, a negotiable for the people of God. More on that later. Thirdly and lastly then, let us embrace people who are different from us. That's another thing this passage teaches us. Right? Even people, not just different, but people who are your your natural enemies. Right? Your enemies should be the objects not of disdain, but of prayer and love. And you should, we should rejoice when we hear of our enemies embracing Jesus in the gospel. So think about it this way. Who in your life is just intolerable to you? Perhaps someone from your past, someone from a different political party. What would you do if some well-known Democrat came to faith? Would you rejoice or recoil? I pray that as we think about people in our lives that are estranged and cut off from God who are our enemies, that we would pray for them. Yes, we want justice in the world. And God will give it. But a passage like this teaches us that even people that we think are reprehensible, beyond salvation, that God has often another plan in place. And so I pray that we would, our hearts would be filled with joy when we hear of God doing great things among people that we might find distasteful. Amen. Well, for those of us who have been reconciled to Jesus through the blood of His cross, who have been raised to newness of life in Him through the power of the Spirit, God invites us to come and rejoice in our salvation as we gather around His table. And He bids us to come and to eat and to drink To receive from him the gospel message as proclaimed by these elements of the bread and the cup. The bread and the cup together represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for sinners. And they they preach that gospel to us. That Christ died, was raised from the dead, and is coming again after he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so when we think about the salvation that we enjoy in the gospel, we recognize that it is past, present, and future in its implications for us, in its reality. The Lord's Supper Supper tells us that in the past, Jesus died. In the past, you were saved, and there's a historical element to our faith, but it's also a present reality because it's not just something accomplished for us in the past, but it's... It's a salvation that we enjoy in the present moment. God exposes our sins through the Lord's Supper as we proclaim to the world that we are sinners by coming to the table. But it also, when we eat and drink in faith, God meets our need and strengthens us by grace to love Him more. And the Lord's Supper, for a future reality, reinforces the promise that Jesus will one day return to raise our mortal bodies to reign with him on the earth forever. And so when we gather each week, we gather as sinners, forgiven sinners, and God communicates his continued pledge of love to us. The Lord's Supper is not a bare sign, but it is a seal, a warranty of the grace of God that has brought you to this moment and will stay with you, beloved, Forever. It's a sacrament of the church. So it is for Christians. So if you've trusted in Jesus, this meal is for you. But if if you haven't, if you're not a Christian, or if you've not professed faith in Christ, you've not been baptized, or if you're under church discipline, or if you're living in unrepentant sin, sin that you, not sin that you struggle with, but sin that you have no desire to mortify, you are, you are living in it wholeheartedly. If, if that's you, then you shouldn't partake. You should w- wait. You should do work with God. You should pray and, and be forgiven and, and run to Him. But if you love Jesus, if you have trusted in His atoning death, if you have found refuge in His eternal priesthood for you, and you have professed Him as Savior, Lord, and treasure, then, then you are welcomed, encouraged, and invited to join us at the table in celebrating this sacred meal. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 um, about how we should come to the table, giving some specific instructions. And there he, he warns us not to eat or drink in an unworthy manner, for in doing so, he says, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves if we come not having weighed ourselves in relationship to God or to man. And so I wanna, we want to do that now. We're going to take a minute in silence and just, we're going to pray Weigh our hearts before the Lord, and then I'll offer a prayer for us all, and then we'll eat and drink together. Father, thank you for grace, for the matchless power of God in the gospel to overcome the hearts of sinners. Lord, we admit it's not, it, it may not be completely possible to know whether Simon was genuinely saved. We desire that he was. We hope that he was. But either way, there's a valuable lesson to be learned from his life and his sin in his rebuke, sin is ever crouching at the door ready to conquer us. And so we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to be watchful, to be aware of our need for grace. Help us to put on the, the armor of God that we might fight against our, our enemies, the, the spiritual forces that work in the world that long to drag us to hell. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel went to the Samaritans and was received. We thank you that it went beyond that to the Gentiles and that we are recipients of that gospel as Gentiles, as the ends of the earth. And we pray that as it continues to go out into every nation under heaven, that every people, tongue, tribe, language, and nation would be brought into submission, Lord, that people from those places would come to Christ. Lord Jesus, get glory for Yourself, and would You minister to us now by Your Spirit and by Your supper and table as we come and eat and drink in Your name. Lord Jesus, it is in Your name that I pray. Amen. We're going to start at the back in the middle section here. You guys can just uh, head out to your right. Come down the, the aisle here. Uh, grab the bread and the cup and return down the middle, uh, or down this aisle, um, to your seats. And then once the middle section is gone, the outer sections will go, starting at the back, still working your way forward out by the windows. Make sure you grab both the bread and the cup, and then once all have been seated, we will eat and drink together. And a word about the, uh, the cups. In each tray, all the outer rings are grape juice, the inner rings are wine. Brothers and sisters, come, let us receive with thanksgiving the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ depicted for us in these elements. For this I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's all stand and sing together uh, one final song in closing.
1: Sam. It's been wonderful going through the book of Acts. We look forward to all that is coming. If you visited with us, again, thank you for, for doing so. We pray that if you have any questions or concerns, or whatever, be sure to shout out to us. Anyway, uh, our benediction is from the book of Romans 15 and verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.
0: The, the passages.